Yes, it is a joy to, to preach this morning. You can pull out the sermon insert. It does look unique because we are out of the Psalms. We're no longer in the summer Psalms, which were an anatomy of the soul. We are now doing a one-week topical sermon. So normal, the, the, the diet here usually is studying through a topic or studying through a book of the Bible um, and just working our way through a passage. Today, we're doing more of a topical thing. So this isn't as normal. These are also harder for me to preach, but I think because I love this topic so much, I think it will serve us. We are looking at communion. Um, it is a rhythm that we do each week, and my hope and prayer for you this week as I've, I've prayed over this passage, prayed for y'all, is that we have our eyes lifted to what it is we do each week. The extraordinariness of this ordinary thing that we do. And so I'm going to be making reference to all of the various um, Lord's Supper passages throughout the Gospels, but I picked one that will just kind of serve as our launching text for our time this morning, and that's from 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're only looking at the bold portion. I put the, uh, the non-bold portions before and after just to give us some context. So I'm just going to read that bold section. So let's stand one more time for the reading of God's word. And I'm just going to read verses 23 through 26 as you follow along. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I used this opening illustration about six years ago, so my hope is that none of you remember it, uh, and if it does sound familiar, that is why. But many of you know that I grew up in Indianapolis. I've been here my whole life, other than about a, a little over a year away for seminary. My wife and I have both been born and raised here. We know all things Indianapolis and the surrounding suburbs. Um, regardless of how long you've lived in Indianapolis, you know that our city and our state, like, there's not as much going on in terms of beauty and mountains and valleys. We're pretty flat, you know, a lot of corn in the state of Indiana. We're a typical Midwest city in that sense. But we are a national spectacle. We are a global spectacle uh, a couple days a year because of the west side of Indianapolis, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, we host races here in Indianapolis, such as the Brickyard 400. That's a great one to go people watch. Uh, the Indy 500, which was always my favorite. Um, growing up, my, my dad would take us once in a while. His company would get tickets. I have not been to a race uh, since becoming an adult because I'm a minister. Those races are on Sundays. You're supposed to be in church. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> So, um, but before I went to my first race, and I never really enjoyed the racing, I just went to see the loud noises and the flyover was kind of cool, and again, like I said, people watch. But before I went to my first race, I always knew of one race car driver because you couldn't be on ESPN or, or see highlights of, of racing without this guy's face. His name is Jeff Gordon. 
Jeff Gordon raced the number 24 car in the Brickyard series, and he is, I think, arguably, if not, not arguably, the best race car driver that NASCAR has ever seen. Um, and in an interview after a race one time, he, he gave away the secret as to why he is so good, how you too could become a NASCAR driver. Uh, when answering the question, why are you so good at winning these races? How do you go so fast? And how have you won so many NASCAR races? He looks the camera in the eye and says this. Well, you either focus or you hit something really hard. <laughs> now, I'm almost positive there is more to driving cars at over 200 miles per hour, whether in a circle or, uh, you know, not a circle. There's, there's more going on than just paying attention. But I did find the comment so fascinating and insightful because the principle applies to our Christian life, which what does the Bible call our Christian life? A race. We as believers are to focus, we are to pay attention on Christ as he's revealed in the gospel or we run the risk of hitting something really hard. Now the question is, how do we prevent that? How do we prevent ourselves from hitting something really hard, from making a shipwreck or a car wreck of our faith? Well, God in his kindness has given us means, avenues, channels, by which we pay attention lest we hit something really hard. They're means of nourishment, means of fuel for the Christian life. Now, in our Christian tradition, these have often been called means of grace. Means of grace. Means simply refers to disciplines. These are practices or worship exercises that posture us in a position to receive the Lord Jesus and meet with him. These means of grace are a way to stay connected to Jesus and receive more and more grace from him to run our Christian race. And the topic of our time this morning, as I've already introduced, is one of those means of grace, the Lord's table. We also call this a sacrament. I think I put it on the front of your worship booklet, the, the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer on what a sacrament is. Because if you're from uh, maybe a lower church background, nothing, nothing wrong with that, but our, our Baptist, non-denom, uh, charismatic, Mennonite circles uh, are kind of afraid of the word sacrament. It sounds a little too high churchy, too Roman Catholic, so they, they probably called it an ordinance. A sacrament is simply a visible sign given by the Lord Jesus himself, where Jesus is communicated and sealed and given to us. The Lord's Supper, in that sense, is a sacrament. It's been called a number of different things, the Lord's table or the communion table, or the Lord's Supper, or just most basically communion. And that is what we're talking about. This bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body, and the body he has made us, and the wine symbolizing his blood poured out for us, atoning for our sins and washing us pure. Now, my big idea this morning, and what's going to drive our time in this kind of one-week topical study of the Lord's table, is in red, on your sermon insert, and that is that the Lord's Supper is the covenant meal of God's people in which we look back, look around, and look ahead. 
So we're going to study this meal as revealed in the, the text of Scripture, this means of grace, this sacrament of which we partake every Sunday by seeing how the bread and the wine are meant to lift our eyes back, around, and ahead. So first, the Lord's Supper is a meal that encourages us to look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In all of the Lord's Supper passages, including 1 Corinthians 11, what takes place in this meal, what takes place in the bread and wine, relates to Jesus' death on the cross and the empty tomb, his resurrection. And it doesn't connect those things, these, these elements as we call them, bread and wine elements. It doesn't connect these things to Jesus as if this is all something new. Like the people of God had no category for sin and blood and covering and atonement. Let's just make something up new with Jesus. No, no, no. The Lord's table encourages us to look back to Jesus, what he did in, on the cross and in his resurrection for us. But as we're looking back, we actually have to look back beyond Jesus to stuff that predates his cross and resurrection to understand and make sense of this meal. What I mean by that is the Lord's Supper is our Passover and our manna in the wilderness. Let me show you those two things. The Passover, you may recall, is the Old Testament story uh, in the book of Exodus. You can read about it. Um, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt, and God raises up the prophet Moses. And he sends Moses to go into the land of Egypt to deliver his people. We just, my family just watched Prince of Egypt on Friday night. That's still an amazing flick. I can't get through it without crying, and the music is so good. Um, you know, not everything in there is right, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. Um, the Passover is is connected to the 10th and final plague in Egypt. Part of, of, of Moses delivering God's people out of Egypt is God judges the Egyptians through 10 plagues. And the 10th and final one, the most serious one, the heightened one, is that God judges the Egyptians for what they had done previously, interestingly enough, by killing the firstborn of all the families in the land. Unless... You took a lamb without blemish who had no broken bones, sacrificed it and took its blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. I know it sounds odd to our modern ears, but this will make sense in a second. So if you did that, if you took a lamb without blemish, sacrificed it, took its blood, put it on the doorpost, then when God sent his angel of death, the angel would pass over the house. That's where this comes from. The people would also enjoy that sacrifice as a meal, interestingly enough. They would eat the animal dressed with their shoes on and wearing a backpack because they were supposed to rehearse this meal as if they were on the go. The Last Supper of Jesus and what we remember each week is in the same sense a Passover meal for us. Jesus' Last Supper, which we read about in 1 Corinthians 11, was a Passover meal. They were remembering Moses and the Passover and, and God saving the Old Testament people from Egypt. And the beauty of it is, is Jesus holds the bread and he holds the wine and says, this Passover meal is actually about me. He is described as the Passover lamb. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And it's very interesting that all the gospel writers draw special attention to the fact that when Jesus dies on the cross, none of his bones were broken because the Passover lamb had to be without blemish and without broken bones. Jesus is our Passover lamb. If you have the blood of Jesus, if you will, over your life, death is not the final answer. Hell, Satan, your sin is not the final answer. Back in the Passover, they were celebrating blood that atoned for them, blood that covered the house, blood that protects. Interestingly enough, too, in the Passover meal that the Old Testament people, the the church of the Old Testament would have celebrated was exactly that, a celebration. The Passover, don't let this get by you, was a party. It was joyful, it was exuberant, it was yes, claps, yay, amens. We do pretty, a, a decent amount of wine. It was a lot more wine with them. It was a celebration and joyful meal. They smiled at it. We'll come back to that in a second. What does this all mean for our thinking about the Lord's Supper, where the Lord's Supper is our Passover? We are celebrating deliverance, but not like them. We're celebrating a better deliverance, a a liberation from sin, condemnation, and death, and hell by the Lord Jesus. Now, the bread is still bread, and the wine is still wine. Just have to make one little caveat here. We're not trying to get weird. The bread is bread. The wine is wine. This differentiates us from other brothers and sisters in different traditions that see the, the, the bread and the wine as literally changing into the body and blood of Jesus. The bread stays bread, the wine stays wine, but Jesus does truly meet with us in a unique and special way by his spirit at this table, at this sacrament. When we, by faith, believe what these things point to. Jesus is feeding us. Not only is the Lord's Supper our Passover meal, but the Lord's Supper is also our manna in the wilderness. Shortly after Moses delivers the people out of Egypt, they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. What are they gonna eat? Well, they ask that question and they start grumbling. Like, let's just go back to Egypt. It was better being a slave in Egypt than out here in the desert hungry. But God hears them and God feeds them. Water from a rock and manna from heaven. So think bread from heaven. This past week on Wednesday, I had the the joy and privilege of preaching at my alma mater high school, Horizon Christian School, up in Lawrence, Geist area. And I preached to the junior and senior high chapel services, John chapter six. This passage where Jesus says, I am the bread come down from heaven. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger and never thirst again. Now then I had to walk students through this because then it gets real weird. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He, now just, usually you're, you're pretty good if you just keep reading because he tells you what he means by eating him and drinking him. It's belief. You eat and feast on Jesus by believing that he is the manna come down from heaven, that he is the bread of life to which the manna back in the wilderness just simply pointed to. The manna was God's means of providing food for his people in the wilderness, in their suffering as they journeyed to the promised land. And friends, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we can think about this as our manna, our sustenance from heaven because we've been liberated in a greater exodus from sin and death 
through a greater Passover that is Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're now on a stage of our journey in the wilderness, wandering to a better Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, what does all this have to do in terms of today? How does this inform our taking of the Lord's Supper? Well, I had a lot more. I cut it down to two. I think this should inform us in two ways, at least, at least two. Frequency and tone. Frequency, what I mean by that is that the Old Testament people of God were rehearsing all of God's dealings with them in a yearly calendar. They came to the Passover meal, the, the, the party that is the Passover meal, one time a year. And the year was full of other remembrances of the Lord. In the New Testament church, Jesus comes on the scene and in the resurrection, which is the first day of the week, begins a rhythm of our life that functions on a weekly basis. Six days, one. Six days, one. That's why we gather when we do on resurrection day, the first day of the week, the Lord's day. Uh, There's more that could be said here, but I think this is an argument for the frequency of the Lord's Supper being weekly. That as we come each week and are remembering all that Jesus has done for us and all that he is in his life, death, and resurrection, we should be coming to the table that is the Lord's weekly. Now, I know that there's traditions that that don't do this, and I come from a tradition that didn't do that. This is not to be divisive in any way. I just wanted to remind you there's good reasons for us doing it each week. It is a part of our remembrance. It is a part of our rhythm and our renewing of the covenant, our remembering what God has done for us. But secondly, more importantly, and this might be a little more uncomfortable for us, I think the Lord's Supper, we often get the tone wrong. We get the tone wrong. What I mean by that is the the, the tone, the feel of the supper is joy, festivity, celebration, not somber contemplation. The table always was and is always meant to be a joyful, shouting, smiling, singing party. And if you're like me, I'm guilty of this too, so I'm out there in the crowd with you stepping on my own toes. I have made the Lord's table a graveyard, a dirge. Thank you, Jesus, for this, but we gotta be very quiet and solemn and oh. Sin. Yes, oh, sin. But yes and amen, Jesus did something about it. This is a party meal. Smile, celebrate. Yes, look around as we're coming to the elements. Like, isn't this great? What Jesus has done for us? And that's why singing is very appropriate. I can't remember which of the the synoptics. I've I've been in these passages so much they've all blended together. But in one of them in particular, it points out that Jesus and his disciples sang hymns at the table, likely pointing back to the Psalter. They were singing psalms of praise and joy as they were eating this meal together. So when we come to the table, friends, we're looking back at all Jesus has done in his death on the cross as our substitute and in his resurrection that makes us, as Roger said in our declaration of pardon, forgiven, free, and restored. How can we know that banner of forgiven, free, and restored and not celebrate? The meal is supposed to be Amazing, because these elements and what they point to are telling us, telling you that if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
Amen. But the communion table does more than just point us back. Okay, I think, if anything, we're probably pretty good on that one. We remember blood, body. But the communion table also encourages us to look around. This is the second point there in your insert. The Lord's Supper is a meal that encourages us to look around and see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The table, friends, is exactly that. A communion table. A family feast. If this is you, I'm sorry, but I've never experienced a big Thanksgiving meal in which all the family, extended relatives you see once a year get together and we're all catching up and having a good time. And then when it comes to the food, we all quietly spread out around the house and eat individually and then come back together for laughter and football and games. And in the same way, when we come to the table, it's not a personal and individual meal. This is a family Thanksgiving celebration. It's not less than a personal meal. We do take to ourselves the bread and the wine. We do trust in Jesus with all that we are, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this meal is so much more than that. It's more beautiful than that. As we look around at one another, I'm not the only one redeemed in this room. And I've been saved from sin, but saved to something. It's called a family. When we say brothers and sisters, that's not just a mantra because I have no other words in my vocabulary. I'm actually just reminding myself that you are exactly that. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now textually, let me prove it to you. I want you to see it in the scriptures themselves. This is, you can see this in a number of ways. One, we could stick with the Passover theme. It was a meal eaten together. Families, extended families, all got in the same house to enjoy a meal together. Second, we could just look in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus was eating the Last Supper, his Passover meal that is the Lord's table, with his disciples and other followers, singing and celebrating. It was a communal meal, but even in 1 Corinthians, look with me at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is a plural you. I know it sounds like southern-ish, the y'all, but that's what it is. I've received what I've delivered to y'all. When you eat this meal, it's a y'all thing. Look down in 26, all of these verbs. For as often as y'all eat together, all of you, this bread, and y'all all drink the cup, y'all all together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we don't translate it that way because it sounds clunky. That's what's going on. You could say, to illustrate this from an Old Testament passage, you could say that the, the, the Lord's Supper is a communal meal of Mephibosheths. Everybody's like, what did he just say? In my own uh, Bible reading time, working my way through the scriptures, I just finished 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel has this wonderful passage in it um, about Mephibosheth. If you don't know who Mephibosheth is, he is the grandson of Saul. So King Saul was the first king of Israel. And he started out as a good king and then ended up abysmal. Uh, he turns his back on the Lord. He is a wicked king. And God raises up David and says, he's the one. He is the king after my own heart. He's going to replace Saul. Well, Saul doesn't like that and tries to kill David over and over again. But to no avail, eventually Saul's taken out of the way and King David put on the throne. Now, when that happens, there's all kinds of skirmishes between people who feel like they're loyal to David 
and people loyal to Saul. And what happens is all the people loyal to David end up slaughtering all the bloodline of Saul, end up killing everybody. But David, because he has such a heart for the, the office that is a king, asks his advisors, is there anybody left of the line of Saul that I may show them blessing? Yeah, Saul was a, a dumpster fire, but is there anybody left that I can bless? And uh, the advisor Ziba says, yeah, there's one. His name's Mephibosheth. He's actually Jonathan's son. Jonathan and David were dear friends. Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. And David's like, get him over here. Now, what's interesting about Mephibosheth is that in the slaughtering of all of Saul's bloodline, uh, Mephibosheth as a baby's dropped. So the servant grabs him and they're on the run and Mephibosheth's dropped, presumably on his head, breaks his back. He's lame. He's lame. So we have a lame person who is naked and unclothed who's on the team of a different king. And David, the true king, says, get that one over here. He's mine. I'm going to clothe him, I'm going to restore fortunes to him, I'm going to forgive him, and he will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth is made a proverbial son of King David. After he's clothed, restored to what he is, and forgiven. We, friends, each week come as a family of Mephibosheths, who were once naked and hungry and rebels on the team of the wrong king, the prince of the air of the earth, the prince of this world, through the work of Jesus have been forgiven, free, and restored, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, fixed of our lame old self, and we are told by King Jesus the words of King David, come and you will always eat at my table. In the very next paragraph of 1 Corinthians, after I stopped reading, Paul says exactly this when he calls the church the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12. He looks at this this group of people and says, Jesus is the head and the church is the body. We're all different body parts that make up this body that is Jesus. Jesus is the head, we are the body parts. It's a beautiful picture. People that are very different in every way, united in Jesus, saying this is our main purpose, though. Think about all the other images the New Testament gives us. A family, a body, a temple, that is, y'all are a temple. We're actually stones that make up the one temple where God dwells. Branches of the same vine, a household. And this doesn't stop when we come to the table. Actually, all of those things should be on display when we come to the communion table as a family. Now think about what the, the Bible is saying here. When it calls the church, when it calls you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ, it is saying that the tie that we have with one another as Christians surpasses the ties that we have with anyone of other groups, other interests, and other beliefs. And the bond that we share together as Christians outweighs even the tie we have with blood relatives if those blood relatives are outside the faith and are not Christians. Let that sink in. We are united to one another in a way we're not united 
to those who share, say, our same political opinions? Hobby, interests, diet preferences, entertainment tastes, vocation, club memberships, school convictions. We are united because we're united by a greater bond that is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. We are the body of Christ. Seen when we come to the table and lay aside our differences and our preferences and say, brother, sister, family. So lift your eyes and look around in a few moments when we come. Let me close with the second point saying, if you haven't seen where I'm going already, this might be new to you. It is certainly new to me that the communion table is exactly that, a communal meal. Let me put it in the negative way. It's not an individual meal between you and Jesus. The tradition that the Lord saved me and I'm very grateful for, I was just preaching back at their, their school chapels, very grateful, but it was, it was always odd to me. We only did communion once a month, but when we did, we, we came and got our bread and our juice, always juice, and we then separated around the room to kind of enjoy our personal relationship with Jesus. Again, it was always quiet and somber. Never together, never elbowing one another and saying, look at, can you, um, look at what we're holding. Look at what Jesus has done for us. This is a y'all reality. We should lift our eyes when we're holding bread and wine and see this is my family. These are my close brothers and sisters. I'll just quote one scholar. Uh, he's a biblical scholar and uh, worship. His name's Dr. Mike Farley. I had the privilege of auditing a class of his at Indianapolis Theological Seminary a couple years ago. And he says it better than I can. He says this. Meals with God in the Bible are never, ever, 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 ever eaten with private, individual introspection, repentance, mourning, and private prayer. Meals with God are always joyful, corporate and social celebrations of our peace and friendship with God. And so in the supper, we celebrate the victory of Christ over sin, Satan, and death. And that is worth celebrating with triumphant, loud, confident, festive music. And corporate songs of that manner make this event both joyful and a genuinely corporate act. We are to lift our eyes around to one another as we eat this family meal each week because we've been purchased from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Third and finally, where we'll conclude, not only does the Lord's Supper point us back to Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection, not only should it lift our eyes to look around at the new family that we now are in Jesus, but the Lord's Supper pushes us forward it lifts our eyes ahead to the glorious day when we see the Lord face to face. This is even in our text. Look back with me at verse 26. For as often as y'all eat this bread and drink the cup, y'all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a meal that we are to enjoy as the New Testament people of God until Jesus comes back. What is woven into that statement? Jesus is coming 
back. There is a day when our faith will be made sight, when we will see and behold Jesus, not with the faith of our hearts, but with our eyes, and we will touch him. And the bread and the wine point us to that day. When we will touch something more than blood, it will be the flesh of our Savior who purchased us. The Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament, a symbol of the covenant that we have with God, but it is pointing forward to the final marriage supper of the Lamb, which you can read about in Revelation 19, and which Roger preached when we were in the book of Revelation. We come to this table in just a few moments as God's redeemed people because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. While we look around the room at the family that we now are in Christ, and we do so while awaiting the day when we see him face to face. The table reminds us to think of Paul's words to the Corinthians elsewhere. And in 2 Corinthians chapter four, he says this. This is our lives. So we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is what he says to any of the struggle in your life, whatever you came in here with, for this light, momentary affliction. Maybe some of you have stuff that doesn't feel light or momentary, and it feels way more than affliction. But listen to what Paul says. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to things, not that are seen, but things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, in that passage and elsewhere, friends, what you are experiencing and suffering now will all be made right in the end. Nothing compares to that day when on that day we see the Lord Jesus. We will look back at whatever suffering, whatever valleys we've had, even the worst of it, and say, light, momentary affliction. Even when now in the moment it doesn't feel like that. Friends, this is amazing News. Jeff Gordon's opening comment that the key to being a good race car driver is to pay attention lest we hit something really hard is even more beautiful when you realize that we are in a race together, running it together, not competing against one another, but competing for one another. Let's go. And if you fall, I'm picking you up and you better stick around because I'm going to fall and I'm going to need you to pick me up and it's even more beautiful because this communal race, this team sport that is our life, we will win in the Lord Jesus. Later in that John 6 passage that I quoted earlier, Jesus says that all the, the people that the Father has given to him will come to him. And whoever comes to Jesus, he says, he will never cast out, but will raise them up on the last day. Those in Christ will cross the finish line. We will reach glory. But that promise, that guarantee is for those in the body. Those availing themselves of the ordinary means of grace that God has provided. We keep going. We keep 
running through ordinary means. One of them being the table. And this is a table that lifts our eyes back, around, and ahead. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and take us to the table. Uh, Tim, you can go ahead and come up. Tim's going to play a song. We're, we're still thinking through this. We'd love to, to get to a place where we're singing song together joyfully, but um, we don't have the lyrics for this song that Tim's going to lead for us. So just let this song be sung over you and enjoy this. Uh, let's figure this out together. As Roger mentioned at the outset, we'll have a person standing there serving you, this person here, a person there, and a person there. Take your time. This is a whole song. Now, the recorded song is like seven minutes, so let's not do the... the, the full passion version of this song. Let's go with like a new city worship version around the four minute mark. But um, as you are prepared, think about the words that um, we've talked about. Think about the words Tim is singing over you and think about this bread and this wine symbolizing Jesus' body given for you. And friends, this is a communal meal for those in Christ. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, if you're not a believer, and we often say a part of a, a gospel preaching church, I would encourage you just to wait it's not uncommon. We're all going to be seated. It's not uncommon just to stay seated. But if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, he is your salvation. He is your hope and your life. Then you are invited to come. You'll receive the bread symbolizing his body given for you and either red wine or white grape juice symbolizing his blood, which purchased you, covers you. And as you do so, let's do so lifting our eyes back, lifting our eyes around to one another and think about what these are telling us to look ahead let me pray for us. And then when you're ready, you can come. And Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for these passages that point us to the means of grace, the sacrament that is the table. I pray that anything that I said that is not of you, you would let just fall to the wayside. And I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would have a fresh appreciation for the table as we do celebrate together joyfully what you, Jesus, have done for us. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Again, take your time, enjoy this. When you're prepared, come receive your elements.